thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. This week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we continue our aircraft series with a look at our first non-U.S. fighter. And Lieutenant Pierre Ate Chouet of the French Navy joins us to make a case for what he feels is one of the best fighters out there. The Rafale is Europe's best-looking aircraft. It has in training shuttle of typhoons, a lot of F-18s. I'm sorry, guys. It's true. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here are your hosts, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilots, Vincent Aiello and Brian Sinclair. Je suis heureux d'annoncer que nous avons notre première interview internationale aujourd'hui. Cello, bonjour, ça va? Bonjour, sunshine, ça va? What on earth did you just say? <laughs> yeah, well, I know, right? So what I said is I am excited to announce that we have our first international interview today. Okay. Well, it sounds like your French experience is better than the two years I had in high school. Did you minor in <laughs> French or something? I kind of, yeah, I kind of snuck in. I minored in French so that I didn't have to take English at the academy. Ah, okay. Well, I struggle with English too. So <laughs> anyway, hello, buddy. And hello to everyone. Welcome to episode 41. If you haven't figured it out, today we are speaking about the Dassault Rafale. And Sunshine, how are things going in your world, buddy? They're going really well. So uh, just kind of hanging out, being a dad and also doing the uh, consulting business, if you will, thing. So how about you, Jello? Where are you right now? Oh, I am in Orlando, Florida, and I wish I could say I was here with the family, but in fact, I flew on the red eye last night, got a little sleep, and now I'm just working on everyone's favorite podcast today. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, unfortunately, Sunshine, you and I have this new tradition of beginning our podcast episodes with corrections. <laughs> so it seems like we have even a correction to our correction. Uh, an astute listener pointed out that it is not the Antonov 224, it's the 225, Sunshine. I'll t- you know what, Jello? I just need to get out of the business of talking about Russian cargo planes altogether. <laughs> well, 224, 225, whatever it takes. <laughs> uh, but there is a difference. But anyway, no, that's true. Yep, we are trying our best, and uh, so that's the way it goes. Also, we have something new this week. We have some feedback on some corrections from the helicopter episode. Okay. And in fact, it's Frank. Frank sent me this audio clip. He asked me to play it for everybody. So let's give it a listen. Hey, Jello, it's Frank again. In the spirit of naval aviation and honest debriefs, I'd like to make a few corrections to some errors I made on the podcast. The SH-60B was introduced in the mid to early 1980s, not the early 2000s, as I stated the SH-60 Foxtrot absolutely did have a cabin window. It just did not slide open as the cabin window of the 60 Hotel. 
That allowed crew serve weapons to be configured on the port side of the helicopter. On the MH-60 Sierra Block 3, the bat wings are officially called external weapon stations, and they're more shoulder or head height than waist height. With regards to the targeting capabilities for the fixed forward firing gun and unguided rockets on the Sierra, squadrons are actually now being outfitted with helmet display and tracker system. It's actually a little monocle-sized device that is attached to the pilot's helmets. It interfaces with the weapon systems and the aircraft to display targeting aids for the aircrew, including impact points for the 20mm gun and unguided rockets. And it also provides some aids in APKWS employment. And that's about it. Thanks again, Jello, for having me on the podcast and for what you and Sunshine do to tell our story of naval aviation. All right, Frank. Well, thanks for that. And that helps us all to understand it a little bit better. Sunshine, in addition to Frank's audio clip, we received an email from Andy Wilson. Okay. And he said that all U.S. Army H-60 models are capable of sling loads. However, it is mission and unit specific. Uh, For example, air assault units typically do not carry a hoist, but medevac units usually do. Also, I had flirted with the idea of wire-guided missiles coming from helicopters. Of course, that's not a great idea with those spinning rotor blades. So he and others have schooled me on the fact that it's not a Hellfire variant, but a TOW missile, which is a tube-launched, optically-tracked, wire-guided missile, and that was typically launched from ground-based platforms. Great, Andy. Well, thank you very much for the feedback and also for our foreign listener on the uh, 224 versus the 225 Hey, Jello, shifting gears here a little. So what's going on with Patreon these days? Patreon is still doing well. We have new division leads, Christian Gruter, Benjamin Feeney, and Tricker. And we also have one more strike lead, and that is Kevin Drummond. Now, speaking of Patreon, we have a big announcement for our digital combat simulator community and flight simulator enthusiasts. In addition to Jabbers, who we added to the team, we recently also welcomed Baltic Dragon. Now, Sunshine, you might remember we mentioned him as a Patreon supporter recently. Well, we kicked him out of Patreon and added him to our team instead, and he has already begun working with us on a DCS FA-18 campaign set in the Persian Gulf. The campaign will be based on the naval aviation thriller Raven One, written by our friend Kevin Miller, who is a previous guest on the show, and is happy to partner up with us and the DCS community. So more information will be available soon. Keep your eye on our website, our social media platforms, and Baltic Dragon's Facebook page, and we'll provide a link to that in the notes. And also stay tuned for future announcements on more DCS opportunities, particularly for our Patreon members. Good things are coming your way with a Patreon refresh and more benefits in the future. Hey, Jell, I'm really excited to see the Fighter Pilot Podcast and the DCS community kind of come together here with those two rock stars. And I'm be very curious to and excited to see what kind of products we can put out now with their uh, their visuals. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's a great community. It's really realistic, as we've spoken about before on this show. And I think this is a win-win for everybody. It helps us to continue to put out the message of naval aviation and all military aviation, and it allows the listeners to involve themselves with it at a different level through the reality of the simulation. So, yeah, I agree. Cool. Hey, uh, should we get to some listener questions? Yeah, sounds like a plan. What do we got? All right. From the listener questions, we have Jamie asks, I'm curious about how the Navy or the military in general molds warriors, fighter pilots in our case, psychologically. You guys come across as tame fathers and husbands who don't have an aggressive bone in your body. Your episode on family life while in the Navy was great, but I know that when the chips are down, you become ferocious fighters. So the questions are, does your Navy training mold you into that? And if so, does each soldier go through their own thinking and justification of why you guys do what you do? Did you ever have philosophical discussions with your peers 
about this sort of thing, or do you just shut up and do your job without discussing it too much? And finally, can you walk us through the psychology of killing as you guys understand it? Jello, do you want to start with that one? Sure. Sunshine, you remember that scene in Saving Private Ryan when they are battling house to house at the end? It's kind of the climax of the movie. Absolutely. The German and the American soldier are fighting upstairs. They're throwing their helmets at each other, biting, scratching, clawing, and finally the one vanquishes the other. Yes. For me, that was a very disturbing scene, and I'm sure it was for a lot of viewers. And it also was a poignant reminder of why I selected naval aviation, because I don't want to ever have to think about that level of combat. That to me is somewhat terrifying. And I'm glad there are Marines and army soldiers and others who are willing to do that because I, that just, I don't know, that was, that was tough for me to consider. As you know, Sunshine, our killing quote unquote is a bit more sterile. It's at a distance. It's not face to face. You're not smelling and feeling and biting and scratching. Absolutely. And so for me, that separation always made it a little more tenable. I never reveled in the thought of having to kill someone, but I just knew it was the job. When you sign up for the military, you accept that it is kill and or be killed. And I, for one, never sat around and talked philosophically about it with others. It was just something we had to do. If you had to employ a weapon, then you did so, and you assumed that you were destroying the target. In my case, I did, not actually killing someone. But hey, if killing needed to be done, I was willing to do it because this is war. And I think there are plenty of justifications out there for why war is necessary. And I just took it as part of the job, but I didn't really revel in it. How about you, Sunshine? Did you have a different view? No, very similar, Jello. I I relied heavily on my faith and my fellow pilots at the time. We would talk about things on the carrier post-mission. But also, war... It is hell. No one ever truly wins it. It's just a matter of who loses less. At least that's my personal perspective. So my job to, when I had to remove bad guys on the ground, it was in an effort to save American lives or save coalition lives. So that's how I spun it in my mind is that I'm actually, as I employ, I am saving other lives because it is, war is a lose-lose situation. Yeah, I agree with that. And, And not to say if we, either you or I, Sunshine, ended up on the ground, having ejected, let's say, in some sort of survival or evasion type of situation. We, we might have had to kill like soldiers in that case, but again, it just comes with the territory. And I think we would do our duty is really what it comes down to. And we've talked on this show before with various folks, including Willie D and others, uh, Mongo, about just what war is like. And we, we don't revel in it too much, at least I don't. No, I don't. And I'll tell you just real quickly, parting shot here is uh, when I was in the Boy Scouts and growing up, I kind of romanticized about war, right? I, I had the, the, the fake guns and I bought the army gear when I went camping and all that. And then when I finally experienced war, not when I finally, but when I experienced war, I no longer romanticized about it. Yeah, no, it does change people. And again, it probably hasn't changed us as much as it's changed others because, again, we had that distance, if you will, or, or disconnection with it face to face. Yeah, great point, Jell, about the sterile cockpit, if you will. So, Jamie, thank you very much for a very deep and psychological question. For sure. All right, let's take a phone call next. Hey, Jell, my name is Sean, and I'm from the suburbs of Chicago. And I have a question pertaining to the Navy's policy about taking in-flight video. Basically, my question is, what are the regulations the Navy has put in place about whether you can or cannot use a GoPro while you're on your sorties? Love the podcast, and keep up the great work. Thanks. 
So, Sean, thanks for the phone call and the question. When I left the service, there was no official Navy policy. They were formulating it, and I reached back to a friend who is still over at Naval Air Forces and was unable to get definitive answer on this. But when I was in the service, the different local commands would have their own local policies, either prohibiting or permitting cameras in the cockpit. Sunshine, did you have any different experiences with that? I did not. Okay. Excellent. Hey, the next question is from Chris in Amsterdam. Chris asks, how do left-handed pilots cope with the right-hand side stick in the Viper? Well, I don't know. I'm right-handed, but I don't imagine it was much of a problem for them because just like us right-handed pilots have to use our left hand on the throttle and every finger on your left hand has a button, at least in the F-18, to manipulate. So as I have attributed it before, it's a little bit like being a piano player. Your hands and feet, I guess that's more like a drummer, but in the case of a piano player, every finger is doing something. And so whether it's your left hand or your right hand, it really doesn't matter that much. And in fact, in the airlines, the Airbus aircraft, the captain in the left seat has a left stick and the first officer in the right has a right stick. And when you move from first officer to captain, I assume you just train your body to do what it's got to do, even with your weak hand. And it's really not much of an issue. Sunshine, do you have any different experiences? Uh, actually, a very similar experience in that in test pilot school, I flew the C-17, and the first time I jumped into that thing, I jumped into the left seat. It has an outboard side stick. So I was trying to fly aerial refueling off a of KC-135 with the stick in my left hand and the throttles in my right, which is very backward. So I totally understand what you're saying about the whole, hey, training and just make it happen. Right. So you were able to overcome your natural inclination to control with your right. Did you end up succeeding okay? I think so, but uh, we'll have to have some of my test pilot buddies on, and they can tell me the real story. (laughs) All right. Well, modesty is one of your strong suits, I suppose. (laughs) All right. And we have one final question and another question from our friend Louis Ferrer. And by the way, he clarified that last week what he meant was what is the Super Hornet's max trap during pitching deck, not just when it's landing on normal decks. And so we answered for 44,000. And Sunshine, I think what he meant was, so in a Hornet, when you have a pitching deck or super high winds or anything that drives you to half flaps, then your max trap goes from 34,000 to 33,000. But in the Super Hornet, it stays 44,000 regardless. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, pitch and deck, I tend to think of Movilis, right? So that manually operated visual landing aid system. And whenever in the Charlie I used to hear 99 Movilis recovery, I would obviously hear 33,000 half flaps, right, Jello? Right, for the Hornets. That's true. And so Louis' question this week is, how are the shit-hot carrier brakes requested to the boss and the LSOs? <laughs> Sunshine, were you ever in, an, uh, in a squadron at 2,000 feet? Yes, and uh, we didn't really ask for it. It's usually, and you don't have to really beg for forgiveness as long as you're smart about it. We wouldn't, when they said Charlie and you broke the deck, uh, you just, uh, just don't want to mess it up. But uh, we never asked the boss personally or the LSOs. How about you, Jello? Right. Same experience. And Louie, you might recall from this podcast that ZipLip is in effect on day case one patterns. And so you just bring yourself down. And if the opportunity presents itself for you to come in at the speed of heat and break at the round down of the boat, you just do it. 
you don't ask anyone, you just do it. And if it was sufficient speed and sound that the LSOs will give you an upgrade, if you need an upgrade, well, then it happens. And sometimes even if you come in a little bit later and there happened to be a gap in the aircraft ahead of you, it didn't have to be just the guys that broke the deck, Sunshine. Sometimes, especially if they were working like a flex deck where it was kind of open for long periods of time, then you just do it. You don't ask anyone. You just do it. And to your point, just don't goon it away. Yeah, great point, Angela. You mentioned Ziplip. So uh, obviously when I mentioned Charlie for Ziplip, they're not going to say Charlie. You're just going to time yourself based off the uh, catapult launches, right? Right. And of course, if we're doing carrier qualification, then it's not Ziplip. And you might be told to Charlie because they're managing who's overhead. But you generally wouldn't come in at 600 knots if you're doing CQ for the first time. (laughs) (laughs) Not recommended. No, not at all. All right. Well, Sunshine, what do you think? uh, Should we get to the interview here? Allons-y, on y va. Okay. Well, this was our first remote interview. We did not travel to France as much as we probably both would enjoy doing so, Sunshine. And actually, he wasn't in France anyway. He was in the UK. But because we recorded over the internet, there will be some slight audio challenges. We encourage you to work through that with us. And also, because our guest is French, he will speak in some metric terms. So if you're challenged like we are, Here's a quick summary for you. When he says tons, if you just multiply roughly by 2,000 and add a little bit more, that will get you to pounds. When he says kilos, you can roughly double it, and that'll get you to pounds. When he says meters, you can roughly triple that and get to feet. And for kilometers, sunshine, this one always crosses my eyes. How do we convert kilometers? (laughs) uh, So if it's a statue mile, it's 1.6 kilometers. If it's a nautical mile, it's 1.885-ish kilometers. So kilometers is going to be a little smaller. So from kilometers to statue miles, you're going to multiply by 0.62. Okay. So take about two-thirds. There you go. Actually, two-thirds better. Two-thirds. Okay. Two-thirds of a distance, uh, he says, in kilometers will be roughly the miles. All right, great. Well, let's get to the interview. Today on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we are trying something new. This is our first remote interview, and we are fortunate to have on the show Lieutenant Pierre Chouet, call sign Ate, of the French Navy, and he is dialing in from east of Heathrow in the UK. Ate, hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Welcome. And we also have Sunshine on the line. Oh, Jello. Bienvenue, Ate. Uh, Excellent. Ate, welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. You are, as I said, our first remote interview, and we'll do our best to work through some of our challenges here with the audio. But as you know, we always begin our episode interviews with a quick background so we can get to know our guest. So please tell us where are you from? What has been your professional military career? And what is it you are doing now? As you said, I'm Ate from the French Navy. I'm a dual citizen, French and Canadian. My dad was a French Air Force officer. He served on Mirage 3. And my mom was born in Quebec, so she's from uh, from Montreal. And born and raised in the southwest of France, near a force base called where my dad was stationed. So I've been aircraft and jets my entire life. My dad did 17 years with the Air Force before switching to commercial aviation. He now flies a 330s for Corsair. I've been raised around aircraft, as I just told you. been flying general aviation from 14 years old. I've been flying in aerobatics. I did some French ships and some precision flying on Cessna. 
French national team and went to the World Championship in 2006. And right after high school, it's possible in France, I joined directly the French fighter pilot program, uh, what we call officier sous contrat. It's like a specific curriculum, EOPAN, which means you're like a trainee to become for the naval aviation. So I was 19 at that point. I've been in the service for uh, 13 years. And my training was some French Navy officer school for about six months. Some flying in light aircraft like Captain. It's a French aircraft that we use for selection. Then I flew to Keno with the French Air Force a little bit. And after that, I got selected to get the best training you can dream of, which is the U.S. Navy fire pilot training. So I got sent in the U.S. for 26 months to um, Pensacola to get the API, all the uh, survival course and all that stuff, and then moved to Whitingfield. They still had the T-34s at the time, and then Meridian, Mississippi with a VT-7 and T-45s. And I graduated in 2010 and came back to France, flew Super Etendard and Rafale for about eight years. And now I just left the service about a month ago. I wear Canada on the 737 MAX, but I've got a leave of absence. And I started my own company in the UK and I use virtual reality to deliver management and communication training for banks or big companies. Folks, that is quite the pedigree, Ate. And Sunshine sounds like he's done the same things you and I have done. Absolutely. Just very impressive. Welcome. Thanks for the background. And we could certainly talk about the Super Entendard with you, but I think for today, we'll talk about the Rafale. How's that sound? Awesome. It's aircraft, so you guys have to learn about it. <laughs> oh, for sure. Now, first <laughs> off, am I pronouncing it correctly? How do you pronounce that aircraft? Rafale. Well, I can't quite put the French pronunciation on like you do, but it's Rafael or something along those lines. Oh, yeah. Um, English speaker says Raphael, but says just Raphael. Raphael sounds good. Or, or just copy kill when you, when you shot you. But that's... <laughs> <laughs> copy wow. kill. Okay. Well, co- copy kill. Uh, excellent. All right. Well, why don't we start, as we always do here on the aircraft series, with what the aircraft was designed to do. So the Raphael basically an aircraft that was designed back in the 70s and 80s. I think the first flight was mid-80s, um, so, so it's a long time ago, but um, the development took a while. And it was really designed to replace all the other Mirage that we had that used to be specialized in a single mission, like the Mirage 2000C was air-to-air only, the Mirage 2000D was air-to-ground only. The Mirage 2000N for nuclear was nuclear mission only. We had super étendards that were air-to-ground and anti-surface from the... We had uh, crusaders that were air-to-air. And, and all those aircraft, the idea was to mix them into a single one, just like the basically the F-18, and, and create a multi-role aircraft. So they basically took six to seven legacy aircraft, put it into one, and they came up with a Rafale. But it, it took some time. I'm sure we're going to cover the different standards. But basically, we've been using a very omni-roll platform for about seven years now. They use the term omni-roll to say that it can do just about anything. So air-to-air, air-to-surface, as you said, the nuclear strike. Did I read correctly? Is there a reconnaissance version as well? Or is that just one of the missions it can do? We have a pod, almost a one-ton pod that you put below the aircraft and a, a reconnaissance-capable aircraft, it's absolutely. We can do um, air-to-air refueling as well, so we can use it as a tanker, and we can also use it um, for anti-surface mission with the Exocet. Okay. And the aircraft is flown by both the French Air Force and Navy? 
That's correct. We have basically three different versions. We have the M for Marine, which is Navy. That is single seat, airlock, uh, carrier capable aircraft. We have the C, C that you can see as a chasseur or a fighter, uh, that is single seat for the Air Force. We have the B, B for B plus or two seater. That is a two seater version that is either used for training by the Air Force or for airstrike mission Air Force. So a two seater version. Okay, very cool. So that's what it's designed to do. But say, does it do really well? Stuff, which is great. A lot of stuff extremely well. And it depends on the ordnance you put below the aircraft because. It really does not behave the same if you're loaded with air-to-ground or if you're in air-to-air mode. Lucky enough to be flying air shows, I was the leader of the tactical display back in 2017. And the difference in handling the aircraft between an air show where the aircraft is completely slick, and if you compare it to the configuration we would use above Iraq with up to six bombs and two or three fuel tanks, it's really not the same aircraft. So I would say it's really for air-to-air missions, and it's a very good air-to-ground platform as well. But the answer is, it, well, what you want it to do and what you equip it to do. So you, you had mentioned a difference in the characteristics between air-to-air and air-to-ground stores. Is that more of a physical aerodynamic limitation or more of a flight control computer limitation? Say both. You do have a flight control limitation. You basically have a small and you can switch from air-to-air to air-to-ground air or air-to-ground with ordnance control mode. But you're going to really feel it because of the delta wing. It's not going to um, accelerate the same. It's not going to feel exactly the same, especially in terms of acceleration. So we've already touched on a few of the variants. Now, just for the nomenclature itself, and you even said the Mirage 2000 or the Mirage F1 and most of the Western aircraft all have some sort of letter number designation. Does the Rafale have any numbers affiliated with it, or is it just the Dassault Rafale? It's Rafale, then you have the version M for Navy, C for Air Force single seat, and B for two seaters. And then you have like the, the number behind that that gives you the version of the aircraft. In 2004, we had what we call the Rafale F1. F1 isn't in service anymore for a couple of years, but it was only air-to-air. Then in 2006, they brought the F2 that had more capabilities and sort of some air-to-ground stuff as well. Then they switched into F3. And from the F3, basically every two years, we have upgrades that bring you more missions and more capabilities. The F4 deal just got signed a couple of months ago by the government, so they're going to have money in development uh, for about 2025. And right now we're working on the F3, which is like a new version that's going to have new capabilities and new missiles, basically. Bien. And then there are also variants with certain nomenclature for the two other countries that operate it. I believe the DM or DH for the uh, Egypt or India. Does that sound correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, export versions are slightly different. Not exactly the versions that we have, and the Qatari version is uh, some specific features. Same for the Egyptians. So they have, uh, and for the Indian, it's going to be the same as well. They have some specificities. If you look at the Qatari, for example, they're going to be able to have the sniper designator pod, something that we do not have in the French, well, um, for the for the French Air Force or French Navy. So export contract has its own 
options, if we can say so, and so different different versions, as you said. Talk about one distinct feature of the Rafale, please. There's a Delta wing. It's uh, something very specific to the Mirage and all the Dassault aircraft. Uh, if you look at the Mirage 2000 or the, the Rafale, we really have this Delta wing. And it's very specific. It's very efficient above basically 350 knots, 400 knots. Really cuts through the air. So a huge air brake. Uh, it's a very good to decelerate. Let's say you're intercepting a drone or stuff like that, you want to decelerate very fast, you're going to be able to really use your uh, your wing as an air brake. It's very, I think, unique to this aircraft. Could we also talk about the uh, canard? So, durability for short takeoff, controllability, what do you think? These uh, canards enable us to come back on the aircraft carrier sometime at 14 or even 15 tons and maintain very, um, very slow speed. We're talking 125 and 150 knots when we come back. Is ordinary with a wing. Um, if you look at the aircraft back in the days, like the Mirage 3 or the Mirage 4, the approach speed were much higher. My to fly Mirage 3R and Mirage 4. And once you had to land at around 185 knots with the Mirage 3. <laughs> so, 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 so it's hmm. very, very... This canard enables us to to have very good handling of the aircraft at slow speed. From experience, we basically fly formation around 100 knots. It's thing you can do with a Rafale. It, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's recommended or smart. <laughs> but you've but done it. <laughs> it can be done. Yes. It can be done. Yes, it can be done. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't try this at home. Yeah. <laughs> So another feature of the aircraft, Ate, is that it is twin engine. Now, the Mirage F1 and the Mirage 2000 were single engine, and my guess is that your Air Force probably would prefer a single, more powerful engine, but I'm guessing the Navy had some say and wanted the twin engine? We love the twin engine, yes. Um, if you look at the size of France, it's a pretty small country. So historically, we don't really need massive jets, and we don't need to go at distances. The Mirage F1, all this generation, it was basically intended to take off, notice, just go full power, climb Buck 3, shoot, and come back. To switching to naval aviation, that we needed to be able to go further and to have more reliable um, systems. So that's why we transitioned to a bigger type of aircraft. And if, if you look at the Rafale, the empty weight of the Rafale is the maximum takeoff weight of the Super Etendard. So to give you an idea, we basically double size of our aircraft uh, when we switch to the Rafale, enabling us to fly for um, longer and also because it was heavier, French are not renowned for having very powerful engines, so we had thrust. And we have the M88 engines, so up to 7.5 tons of thrust, and we have two of those giving us 15 tons of thrust for a maximum takeoff weight of 24 tons. I think that's one of the main reasons why we, we transitioned to one is because of the extra weight, and the other reason is because we wanted something redundant, as you said. Yes, and that is important for most naval aircraft, although as Sunshine and I have said before on this show, for whatever reason, we're getting away from that with the F-35, but that's the way it goes. If 
was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, Call Sign Primetime, and my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone, available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. Well, speaking of the thrust and the weight, what can you tell us about the performance of the aircraft? How high can it go? How fast? How many Gs? We're allowed to fly between 100 feet in the Navy and 50,000 feet. The aircraft could fly above 50,000 feet, but I've never been um, because we would be required to wear uh, special suits. I'm sure, as you know, basically, if you approach flight level 660 and you have a depressurization, you're blood is going to start boiling, which is not very cool. So that's why they tell us, don't, do not go above 50,000 feet. It's more like a peacetime regulation. And in terms of speed, flight envelope is officially from 100 knots to Mach 1.8. The aircraft is super cruise capable, so we could fly without the afterburner on at Mach 1.4, which is pretty cool. And in terms of wing um, rates, pretty sick. Uh, <laughs> so... And we would do that for training. You, you put the aircraft at 100 feet, 500 knots. You put the afterburner on, 60 degree nose up, and you let come out of burner, but not to go supersonic in a 60 degree nose up climb up to 45,000 feet that you would reach in, in less than a minute. Wow. So the rocket ship, it, it is pretty cool <laughs> to fly. Yeah, it, it is. Coming from Super Etendard, which was a single engine, by the way, it's quite a shock. How about G-forces? What can you pull? Um, maximum is 11 Gs. The um, air to ground, you're going to be limited to about 5.5 Gs ish. And then if you go like air to air, it's going to be 9 Gs and 11 Gs if need be. So in air shows, we would take 10 Gs or 10.5 Gs. How long could you withstand these? Uh, I've tried different stuff at different altitudes, especially when I was training and, and for, for our shows. And if you go above 400 knots and you put the full afterburner and you're like block zero or block one, so let's say below 15,000 feet, you're going to you're gonna release the stick first. There's no way you're going to win against the aircraft. <laughs> it's, it's just going to make seven plus range and it's going to kill you if you don't, if you don't let go. It, it is insane. Um, but with the Delta, if you go at AOA, then you can, you can see an afterburner and, and just keep the aircraft at an angle of attack. You're going to be fine because you're not going to be taking a lot of Gs. But if 450 knots plus low level and you just pull on the stick, you're just going to either pass out or let go. <laughs> it's just up to you. <laughs> Passing out just thinking about it. <laughs> Ate, let's talk about the armament that it carries. And we've already touched on some of them, but this thing sounds like it has the array of air-to-air -air and air-to-surface weapons, including nuclear weapons. But walk us through the different armament. You guys have some time because there are quite a few, but we'll, <laughs> we'll go through them. No worries. This one and the, the legacy one is uh, the 30 mic mic. So it's only one cannon, 
25 rounds, but it's a 30 mic mic. So see one round as about 480 grams. So it's pretty, it's pretty used for air to air or air to ground. Stay into the air to air. In France, we use the Mika missile F2 version. We have the Fox 3 electromagnetic version, or we have the Fox 2 version. But a bit to understand with this missile is that we basically have a Fox 2 that has the same range as our Fox 3. I don't know if that makes sense to you guys. It's basically our side window is basically mounted on our 120, if that makes sense. So like an AMRAM with an IR seeker. So does the Rafale have some system to cue it to go to those longer ranges, or do you just enjoy the extra kinematics in the visual range? We have the same booster, and we just change the front. So you change it from Fox 2 or Fox 3 just by changing the basically the, the stuff in the front. And use it for short range or long range. It's very, very flexible. So we only have one type of air tour missile right now, uh, making it very easy. It just has a different seeker. Well, that's interesting. Yep. Okay, but what else can I carry? Oh, the, maybe you've seen it in the news. Last week, they shot the first Meteor missile. So the Meteor missile is project. The Typhoon is going to get it, but the Rafale as well. And it's going to basically give us air-to-air capabilities at about, like if you look in the press, I say 30 to 60% or even 80% extra range from what the Mika is. So it's, it's going to be our new long stick if i can say so so it's going to change the air-to-air doctrines and tactics quite a lot in in europe and it's going to be in service within a couple of years maximum so it's almost like bringing back the aim 54 phoenix that they used to fire at very long ranges exactly now with all the system as you might imagine the tactics are going to be much more and much more lethal if we look now at the air-to-ground stuff Cherry 12, which is like the Paveway to US Mark 82 bomb, so 250 kilogram bomb. We can also carry the GBU 24, which is a one ton Paveway 3 version, which is pretty useful when you want to hit bigger targets. But what makes the Rafale more unique is um, what we call the hammer. In French, we say ADMSM. Hammer stands for uh, Allegal Modular Munition Extended Range, and it's basically a 200 and we have 500 kilograms version as well, but we mostly use a 250 kilogram version. So it's a bomb, and you had a booster on it. And just to give you open sources information, I looked at Wikipedia first to not to to give any secret numbers out. But uh, Wikipedia says it's about 60 kilometer range, and they're not too far from the truth. So so it's really like a hard bomb that can go at more than 30 miles, and we have different type of for that, we can have like inertial linked with GPS, inertial link with laser, or we can have like inertial link with infrared, and you basically fit it with some infrared information. It's going to find target on its own. So, so that's that's very efficient. It's basically our standoff ground weapon. And we need something like that on the west here. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, dude. Jeez, <laughs> it's pretty cool. But I'm sure it's up for sale. So you. Just, just <laughs> to the highest bidder. <laughs> there you go. Well, we're out of the game, so I don't know if they're going to listen to us. Okay. You never know. I'll take 10%. You never know. There you go. <laughs> what about cruise missiles? Does it also, we talked about the AM 39 Exocet anti ship missile, but does it also fire cruise missiles? Absolutely. It's called a Scalp, uh, Scalp PG, and it has been shot quite a lot in Iraq and in Syria. So it's basically like the British Storm Shadow. So it's a big missile you can put below the aircraft. We can carry several, uh, usually one, two, three. And it's basically like 
Lawrence, newer version of the Tomahawk, and it's just going to its way into enemy territory at the altitude you want it to, and it's going to start it using GPS, inertial, or any type of system. In terms of this, we have also the ASMP, which is our tactical nuclear missile. So it's used by the two-seaters in the Air Force, or in the Navy, we use it as a single-seater. So it's like a, a special qualification to be nuclear-capable. We carry one of those missiles as well. It's more like a per so we don't use it very often, as you might imagine. Let's hope we never have to use it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what, that's what it's here for, exactly. Yeah, um, right. If you look at the air first, we indeed have the AM-39 Exocets, which is pretty famous, uh, sadly, in the UK, because it was used during the Falkland War by Super Etonard against the Royal Navy. It was very effective. Fall as an enhanced version of the exosets that was used by the Super Etonner, but only the Rafale Navy is able to use it. It's to be used by the Rafale Navy, the Air Force Rafale are not able to carry it. And we can carry one, and it's a very, very efficient and lethal missile. So it's a very good to use. Interesting that it's not on the Air Force aircraft, but I suppose you have to limit just how much a pilot needs to know how to do because at some point you get saturated. And entire subject on its own, but like switching from single mission aircraft to omni-role mission, really don't hear market the aircraft is that now we need one division leader that's able to do six or seven mission as an expert and train New York guys six or seven missions. Whereas before, like when my dad was flying, it was only like air to ground reconnaissance guy. He was division lead at 24 years old. It was single mission only and his life was pretty easy. And, and now for us, it takes like eight eight to 10 years to get all your training in because you have to be an expert in air to ground, air to, anti-surface, dogfighting, air to air, long range, reconnaissance, all that stuff. So the training really takes forever. Oh, that is certainly true here in the West as well. In the F-18 and presumably the F-16, there are so many mission sets that it, it takes a long time to excel at any of them. But I also think that makes us better pilots because you're forced to really get into the books and study and practice. And maybe you're not particularly fantastic at any one like your father was with his missions. But I think overall, we might be more adaptable to circumstances where the mission might be changing or they you know they have limited squadrons in theaters so they need people to do the different missions so you're absolutely right and i think it's good for fighter pilots ego as well but uh, <laughs> we, we, we used to say i mean you guys know it but you know the motto like you're only as good as your next pass and i think now we can almost say like you're only as good as your next mission because it's going to be so you never know what's going to come up. Like you're going to be flying air to ground, and then all of a sudden you're re-rolled in air to air above Syria, and next thing you know, you're doing like uh, air to surface mission to protect the boat on your way back. So, so it's it's very like changing mission all the time, which makes the the job very very fun. I must say. Agree with that. So uh, we had already talked about the Delta Wing as in the strength. Ate, can you tell us about other strengths of the? Well, please. Say the integration of the system and the interface between the jet and the pilot is extremely well done in the Rafale. If you've seen the cockpit, but if you haven't, you can Google it and you'll see what it looks like. Um, you, you can see a lot of pictures on Google and you see there are huge screens. And the middle one is like a 10 inch screen that's going to give you all your information with a moving map. 
then on this moving map, you'll have all the air-to-air -air information. So you really have all the sensors information, your radar, your TV cameras, your, your missiles, all your sensors are all on one screen. And by looking at that screen, you an extraordinary situation awareness and i think that's that's the best thing about the rafale is your ability to cope with a lot of different informations because everything is presented in a very easy way just in front of your eyes that's, that's something extremely powerful and if you look sometimes at the typhoon or stuff like that they have like a moving map on one side right there on the other side and just able to cope with all the same amount of information as fast than i can with a rafale so decision during tactical phase here and we can sometimes like take more risk because we have a very good situation awareness. Everything is in front of our eyes. Gotcha. So the large area common display, we'll call it, or sensor fusion as the buzz term is here in the U.S. So how about the heads up display and do you have any kind of amount of queuing? Oh, yeah. So it, it does exist. I know some version of the rough going to get it and it does exist, but the French Air Force and the French Navy haven't the option yet. So we do not have magic helmet like you guys have on the F-18 or F-35. Uh, so for us, it's just a legacy head-up display in front of us, which is, I must, I must say, the biggest point of the Rafale right now is the fact that we don't have this, this helmet and we don't have these capabilities to, to, to mark stuff directly like for air-to-ground missions by looking at the ground or for air-to-air -air by looking at the other aircraft. So right now, it's just a, a legacy, very large head-up displays that we use. In the U.S., we have a doctrine where we will not export any of our fighters that, or weapons that have more capabilities than what we in the U.S. have. Is that not the case with France? Will they export a, a Rafale that has more capabilities to a different country? I'm not into politics, uh, so I might not venture into, into this. But uh, what I can say is that we, we can export very good stuff. And right now, we could use the helmet-mounted visor and helmet um, in the military, but we just haven't paid for it, to, to be very honest. But it's something that should come in the coming years. I like okay. that answer because we're not very much into <laughs> politics either here. We, no, we're not. So we, we say early on the show that if you want all the background, that you can find it somewhere else. We're just going to talk about the aircraft and the weapons and the people. So that is one weakness. I read that the early infrared pods that you had were also a little bit behind their peers. Any other weaknesses you might be willing to share with Rafale? Yes, yeah, so the Democles pod might be honestly slightly below its competition, but something that has been taken into account for years now. And uh, the Talios, the, the new laser target designation pod um, designed by Teles is, is being tested right now and the results are, are very good. So we did have some some stuff like yeah the Democles pod which is not the best in its category but those issues are being addressed and something that's very good for let's say in the French industry and I, I used to be the link officer between the users of the Rafale Navy and the industry um, we have like one guy one, one division lead that goes to Dassault or MBDA places like that and give like feedbacks on how we use the stuff, and I, I had this position during a year. And and what's very good in France is it, it's a small world, it's a small community, and when you give some feedback, let's say, hey, maybe the radios are not all what we wish they could be, they change it very, very fast. So all the feedback we bring back from Iraq, from a training mission, everything, it's being listened to and implemented, and because the aircraft, a constant evolution, you know that down the line it's going to be changed and it's taken into account, making the aircraft more and more efficient and lethal. That's 
to be very encouraging for the pilots and the defense forces there to know that they are working well together. But as pilots, versions never come fast enough. Let's say you, <laughs> to come out, you make a report saying, oh, I would like, like this issue fixed and say, come back to you saying, oh, yes, it's in two and a half years. And you're like, oh, my God, two and a half years, blah, blah, blah. So, so yeah, you, you know what it's like. But, but it's being addressed and it's being, it's being fixed. So it, it does move in a good direction. Great. What about the, uh, I read that the naval variant, the Rafale M, things are not able to fold, which is always useful for naval aircraft to save a little bit of room. Do you find that to be a problem on the Charles de Gaulle or when you've visited American carriers at all? Actually not, because the, there is not a lot of room on the French aircraft carrier. Um, the Charles de Gaulle weighs about 42,000 tons. It's like 261.5 meter long, so it's like half the size of in terms of weight of U.S. carrier, even less. Uh, look, they just did a picture with 30 Rafale sitting on the deck. It just takes some time to move the aircraft around and, and be efficient. So might be easier if we could fold the wings, but we have very, very efficient technician and ground crew and how to move the aircraft around. And, and yes, sometimes it can be very difficult to walk in the hangar, but we manage. And as Sunshine likes to say on this show that... Aircraft are a series of compromises, and I suppose what you gain in not having folding wings is more commonality between Rafale models, because as I read, it shares something like 95% with its Air Force variant, the Navy variant, that is, whereas the F-35, which was designed to be pretty common across all three, in fact, something less than a third now is what I've read, so I suppose helps with your supply system and interoperability to have more commonality between the Air Force and Navy variants. That's a very good point. And if you look at numbers in terms of Navy aircraft, I think the goal for 2030 for like for in, in 10 years is to have about 225 Rafale total for the French military. 40 of those are going to be Rafale Navy. So you're really looking at the niche, at a very small number of jets. So having too much specificities for the naval version would have increased um, the cost a lot. And you always need to keep costs under control. Indeed. All right, Ate, so where would the French citizen or even the American citizen have seen a Rafale in either version of Hollywood or in the news or in demonstration teams? What is the aircraft notorious or known for? We don't have movies, really. Like We don't have the French... Navy Top Gun <laughs> movie yet, uh, uh -huh. so it, it's it's not that much on TV. Um, there is a lot of documentaries on TV and a lot of press around the Charles de Gaulle because it, it's the only big carrier in Europe. So so we tend to to, to have quite a lot of um, reporters coming on board and a lot of coverage of, of our activities. Um, but if you want to see a raffle from a close, um, you're gonna have basically all the air shows. We have a lot of air. In Europe, the Air Force has a single aircraft demonstrator, and the Navy now we have a two-seat tactical display. Um, so it, it's a very different type of flying. Um, I, I know you guys have some tactical displays as well, so we don't get the much uh, as much training. It has to be smoother. We show different different type of routine. We usually display uh, in Brittany. On Paris a bit, in the south of France, and abroad a little bit. I did some air shows in the UK, went to, to Yeovilton, a team went to, to the Riot last year, and, and that's a good to, to see jets. Actually, if you look at the 2017 play season, 
best leader in Yevilton and we won like best award for the air show. And the week after that, the French Air Force guy was at Riot and he won the best award for the Riot. So <laughs> it was pretty fun. In about 10 days, Paul won the displays back to back in uh, in the UK. So, so it was pretty, it was pretty cool. Okay, so that is testament to both the aircraft as well as the pilots and support crew. We do have awesome support crews. It's one of the strengths that we really have in the French Navy is that we're a small community and our guys work very, very, very hard. And <laughs> it, 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 it's, it is impressive because full community, we need to be jets ready to go all the time. So the, the Rafale is a very reliable aircraft, but still it does require a decent amount of maintenance like every modern aircraft. Guys are very, very efficient. They don't count their hours. Yeah, that's great. Well, it sounds like just like we pilots are all cut from the same cloth, just born in different places. The uh, maintenance crews are the same. They put the aircraft uh, ahead of their own schedules and their own. Yeah. So that's good to hear. <laughs> We're just about running out of time here. Ate, any good quick sea stories operationally or around the boat or maybe even in an air show demonstration? Any any exciting stories? A funny story um, that directly relates to to the US. Uh, maybe you remember back in January 2016, you got um, two small speedboats that got uh, captured by the Iranian guards on uh, Farsi Island. At the time, the French Navy was in charge of all the naval assets in the Gulf. And it was planned from a long time that it was French jets that were supposed to combat air patrol above the USS Arias Truman. And so during the night, you got like some sailors that got captured by the Iranian. And next thing I know, I'm supposed to take off for combat air patrols. It was supposed to be a routine flight. And uh, I'm being ordered to take more missiles than a wingman because like, in the middle of a between Iran and the U.S. So, so that was quite something because I ended up being air patrol flight for the U.S. Truman. And I was controlled by the British frigate as a French-Canadian guy in a French aircraft. And we ended up uh, doing some interception on Iranian um, AVs. So, so, so that was pretty fun. That's some international stuff and <laughs> and rules of engagement nightmare. Well, I imagine <laughs> so, but good interoperability demonstration anyway. Yeah. Hey, well, gosh, we have probably only barely scratched the surface on this aircraft. I'm sure we could talk for hours, and I say that at the end of all of our interviews. But I think we should probably leave it at that. Tell us what the future holds for you. You you talked about starting a business and being in the UK. Are you going to continue flying? You're you're flying commercially, but any future military flying? Um, right now, it's possible to come back as a, as a pilot in the reserve in France. That's something that wasn't possible before. But um, because of the lack of of instructors and Rafale, it's it's something that is doable. Uh, right now, I'm just pretty busy doing my my business and speaking um, gigs as well all over Europe, and I'm, I'm going to expand in Canada as well next month. So it keeps me busy quite a lot, but uh, I'm going to be back in maybe consulting for military contractors, stuff like that, because it's very tough to being around jets and, and tactical environments. Well, certainly for somebody like you who was raised around it all your life, I can see where it is, but my guess is you'll keep a finger in that sort in some manner or another. So... All right. Well, so this part of the show is usually where the guest explains his call sign. So over to you on this one, Ate. What means and how did you get it? 
Sure. So uh, first, you have to understand something about the French Navy is that our call signs are not supposed to be as cool as the U.S. call signs. So there is no Iceman, there is no Maverick, no stuff like that in the French Navy. So, so that's a shame, but it's like that. Well, um, that's not in the U.S. Navy either, unless you get the whole thing, so. <laughs> Yeah, unless you're Hollywood or the Air Force. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my last name is Shue. And my call sign is Ate. And if you say out loud very fast my call sign and my last name, it's Ate Shui. And it's very close to Ate Sui, which is a French expression um, when, you, when you sneeze um, that says basically bless you. So it's, 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 it's a small play on the world. So Ate Sui, Ate Shui. Uh, when I was an exchange uh, student in, in, the, um, in the U.S. Navy, they used to call me Chewy. Uh, like the guy in Star Wars, so I thought it was cooler than Ate, but uh, but I can live with it, and, <laughs> and it goes pretty well on the radio. Ate is, is very short, very efficient, so, so so I like it, and I I don't have a choice anyway. No, of course, indeed, <laughs> that's awesome. So it's a play on name. So it sounds like some things never change, and I'm guessing you have some friends with call signs from something silly or stupid they've done. But okay, you you've uh, avoided any uh, spotlight on you. It sounds like. Yes, yeah, yeah. I, I can think of some very, very bad, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's leave it at that for this uh, particular show. Well, Ate, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show. I'm sorry we couldn't do this in person. If your travels ever take you to San Diego, be sure to let us know. Normally, at the end of our episodes, if you've listened, you know that we do a little disclaimer to say that ourselves and our guests do not speak for the American military complex. Uh, I will offer to you something I've not done before, an opportunity to say something along the same lines, unless you want to tell us that you do, in fact, speak for the French military, but uh, I'm guessing you don't. Are you speaking for yourself here today? Yes, I'm speaking for myself. I'm not speaking for the French Navy, the French Air Force, uh, neither the Canadian Air Force or Canadian Navy. Nobody, just, <laughs> just myself. Okay, or Dassault, most. Uh, not Dassault, no, and not okay. some video games. I do some stuff with video games. No, nobody, just myself. Okay. Well, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. And uh, Sunshine, what else do you want to say? And we'll let you uh, sign it off here with him. Let's get out of here. Awesome. Dude, you're the man. All right. Once again, big thanks to Lieutenant Pierre Ate Chouet from the French Navy calling in from the UK. Sunshine, I thought that was a really awesome interview. Dude, I was laughing the whole time. Just loved it. The guy is, is fantastic. <laughs> yep. I think it would be a lot better if we could all be in person because there's that nonverbal communication for whose turn it is or to respond to somebody. But I did my best stitching it together and hopefully it sounded like a coherent interview. But I just thought it was really cool that even with our American accents, we're a lot like him and I always like to say it that way instead of his French accent. But I think we all are as we said in the interview, really kind of cut from the same cloth, kind of just born in different places. And what punctuated that for me was when he said, sick, or that was sick, or something like that. That's a great Completely, American yes. term. Huh? Yeah, it was, man. Hey, just while I'm thinking about him, I was just thinking about one of my test pilot school buddies. So uh, if I could just give a shout out to Thibaut zouf Bruz and uh, his lovely wife, Isabel. So tu me manques, mes amis. Excellent. All right. And I did end up, Sunshine, cutting out a little part of our discussion where you and Ate end up talking about the 
French carrier Charles de Gaulle and night traps and the fact that they have bars on their carriers <laughs> and we don't. And I will offer that up as a bonus segment on our Patreon page for those at the appropriate level. So head on over to patreon.com, look for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, and consider signing up. Not only do you gain access to exclusive content, but you also help support the show. So Sunshine, did you notice the bumper music we use on this episode is the same music we use for the FA-18? Absolutely. I love what Jaime does. Yeah. And so our idea was when he makes a new song and we use it in a particular aircraft category, that we'll use it for all those categories. So since we use that song for the FA-18 and the Rafal is also a fighter, we're going to reuse that song. And in the future, when we hear an episode on, let's say, an attack aircraft like the A-10, well, guess what? You might hear the attack song again. And we're just doing that to keep things all within a certain theme. But also, we just don't want to work poor Jaime to death. The guy works real hard on these songs, so we're going to reuse some of them and when you hear a new helicopter episode in the future, you'll probably hear his take on the ride of the Valkyries again. Elegant efficiency, Jello. Well, that's what we strive here for. All right. Well, I think that will just about do it. Once again, you folks in the DCS world out there, keep an eye on us and our Patreon page. We have a lot coming in the future. As always, we want to remind the listener that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. So that will do it for this episode. Sunshine, we're going to continue the aircraft series with the next episode. And any guesses on what we might be talking about? Oh, could it be the venerable F-14? It could be the big fighter. The listener will just have to tune back in to find out. Until then, what do we always like to say? Sortant d'ici. Let's get out of here. See ya. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave us a message on our listener line at 877-MOCK-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening. to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.